Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of issues, trends, and developments in future fuels and vehicles. I'm your host, Tammy Klein, Principal Consultant with Future Fuel Strategies. And with me today is Steele Lorenz, he has the best name ever, who is Head of Sustainable Business at Farmers Business Network. Steele, welcome to the show. Hi, Tammy. Thanks for having me. And I, I didn't realize how complimentary this uh, interview was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I saw your name, I was like, that's a heck of a good name. <laughs> so first of all, before we get into the questions, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your role in particular at Farmers Business Network? Yeah, absolutely. So I have spent my entire career working at the intersection of working lands and finite resources. and Prior to being at FBN, I had my own startup working on water security and small plot growers in India. And so I've kind of always been intrigued about the the opportunities to help growers maximize profitability, guarantee longevity in that of those working lands and of those family farms being able to work those lands, but then also connect that with uh, uh, environmental outcomes. So I've been with FBN for two years in the role of of head of sustainable business. And in that role, it's really my job to connect growers with emerging markets that are focused on environmental outcomes that pay premiums for for growers that are adopting certain practices or achieving certain results. And it's been absolutely fascinating. Brief history on on FBN or overview of FBN. Mm -hmm. Started in 2014 as a digital analytics platform that allowed growers to share information about how they were growing and then get back information about how other growers that had similar practices or, or similar field conditions to see how they benchmarked against their peers to identify new opportunities, strategies for, for improvement. And that has grown quite substantially to include a lot of economic transparency uh, around how much uh, inputs cost and how much regional and national averages are. But then has also evolved to include a number of other commercial units, both on the input side. We now run one of the largest e-commerce companies on for agricultural inputs. Um, and we also have a complete crop marketing and, and a risk management uh, service that does everything from production contracts through crop insurance, hedging and risk management for, for growers, as well as, as finance. So kind of an entire digital rethinking of how farm profitability can work uh, in the U.S., uh, Canada, and beyond. I will never forget, so I used to live in Bismarck, North Dakota for a number of years, and I'll never forget when we got our first Starbucks. And uh, I was, of course, partaking, as was the whole town. You know, that's what we did when something new came to town. Everybody was there. You know, you see like that's when, you know, like Blackberries were, were coming out and you and Bluetooth headphones were coming out. and you know, you kind of have this vision of like the of the farmer, you know, not really technologically sort of ad- advantaged or or plugged in. And it was my experience is that actually in, in many cases, it's actually quite the opposite. So you'd see these guys with their big cowboy boots, you know, and their, their farm wear, so to speak, and with like a couple of blackberries on their belt and a Bluetooth coming in, coming in to get their Starbucks. I mean, it was just a hoot to see. So it, it's it's really interesting how kind of plugging in the agricultural sector, the farm communities in with te- technology the way you, you've described. So you came to my attention because 
you made this really interesting presentation at the recent Low Carbon Fuels Standard workshop that CARB held. I think it was back in October or November. It was recent. And a client of mine sent me this, your presentation. I was like, oh, this is really interesting. Have you seen this? And I had had not. And that was really, really interesting. So that presentation was about, speaking of technology, a a technology called Gradable. So can you talk to us about what Gradable is and what field level or farm level carbon intensity is for the listeners? What does it mean, in your view, for farmers, for fuels, and for compliance with low-carbon fuels, with, with the LCFS, not in, only in California, but with future clean fuel standards in, that are, it already exist in other states, that are being considered in others, and that I think is, is really going to end up being considered at the national level? How's that for a question? <laughs> well, you may have to remind me of some of it. There's, there's a lot to unpack there, but but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very I, good at the what, multi-part question. <laughs> <laughs> well, you My keep specialty. me honest and let me know. Yeah, let me I, know if I no. if I missed or skipped something. Yeah, but let me let me start actually with something really interesting you you said, which yeah. was kind of an assumption about how much technology is on the farm and how technologically savvy growers are. And I, I have to tell you that modern farming produces a tremendous amount of, of data from, from exceedingly high-tech equipment. You know, harvesters, yeah. sprayers, combines are all collecting hundreds of thousands of data points every acre. And growers are really using and maximizing that to the extent that they can to make better informed decisions about what they should plant, when they should plant, how they should plant or uh, cultivate and uh, how they should market. So I think that there is some misconceptions that we have to put to rest. We often joke that to be a grower today, not only do you have to be an expert in in um, mechanics and engine repair, you have to be an expert agronomist, and increasingly, you have to be an expert data manipulator and, and to some extent, coder, because that is, you yeah. know, all of these machines include an increasing amount of, of data and, and uh computer sophistication. So so anyway, that is the segue into what the opportunity is in the low carbon fuel standard. So we started working on this about two years ago because of all the information that's available. Really, you know, this wouldn't have been possible 10 years ago, but now with you know technologies like FBN's analytics platform and and the amount of information that's collected in the field, it is possible to assign carbon intensity score with a high amount of certainty and uh, and verifiability to bushels that are coming off of individual fields. And so when we started to look at that and see, you know, really how we could facilitate that, that's when we started talking to CARB. And about two years ago now, they put us together with a couple of other groups that were working on the same idea from different angles. So they put us together with Argonne National Lab and Michael mm-hmm. Michael Wang's team who has done an incredible amount of work. All of your listeners would know this, and and uh, on the GREEP model and pushing forward, you know, the the science and the modeling efforts on on life cycle analysis of fuels. And they also put us together with ARPA E and uh, mm-hmm. David Babson's group, who yeah. uh, you know is is doing quite a bit of work there. And they uh, the final party was uh, Poet Ethanol, who was trying to work on this, but None of us had to put all the pieces together. And so CARB in, in their 
Infinite Wisdom said, you guys are all working on the same thing. Why don't you do it together and come back? And so out of that, two things came. One was um, RPE's Smart Farm Initiative, uh-huh. uh, which I think David had been, had been working on the pieces uh, already. But what he has launched is essentially, I believe, $20 million at this point, perhaps yeah. more funding uh-huh. for future technology measurement data collection in the field that's going to be able to inform kind of the next generation of modeling and and certainty around soil organic carbon n2o emissions kind of the two uh, some of the 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 core buckets that um, they they see as being able to get a lot more exact upon that's kind of one component of, of what came out but the other component was trying to figure out what we could do today um and so fbn Argon and uh, a poet uh, went off to confirm some of Michael's research in the area that suggested that if growers adopted best practices and uh, entered that into the, the Greek model, that actually it's possible that uh, the carbon intensity for an entire supply chain of you know an ethanol facility or a soybean facility or or sorghum facility could be quite a bit lower than what they were currently getting credit. And that would that would you know include where growers were today, but more importantly included the ability to connect them with this you know financial incentive, the the LCFS that is that would be highly influential at getting growers to adopt new practices and continue to uh, drive CI scores lower. And that's what we were we really wanted to uh, replicate what his work had suggested was possible. In uh-huh. a specific supply chain where we were measuring the bushels, the bushels were coming in, they were being produced in a, you know, into biofuels, and then they were going to California to prove that we could actually connect all the dots. Uh-huh. The other thing that we, we really needed to uh, show, and this is was FBN's main focus, is that the data was available in a way that we could be very certain of, of claims uh, and have it be highly verifiable. And we also wanted to make sure that that farmers were bought into this program, into the idea of providing some level of transparency to be able to get a carbon intensity score and market upon that. And that was something that they were interested in in uh, participating in. And then the final piece is that we wanted to actually see what the results were going to be, where growers were scoring today, where we thought the opportunities for improvement might be. And so the first two really went down about as smoothly as I, as I could have hoped for. And there was a, you know, an incredible amount of excitement from growers. Um, essentially, the, the core message that we heard was that, you know, we have long wanted for markets to be able to differentiate our practices. Right? Essentially, we know that we can produce in, in a certain way. And, we, and many of us have already taken on, you know, taken some steps to adopt uh, practices that will be uh, mm-hmm. carbon efficient. We're not getting any credit for it today, and so we 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 really want for a market like this to exist, and we can do a lot with it. And the second component is that uh, the data was readily available. Now you have to be able to have a system like FBN that can ingest data from a bunch of different disparate sources, layer in third-party data, and and uh, do analysis on it. But essentially, that the growers could readily participate in this or other markets based on the the amount of data that they're producing and how accurate it is. So all of that was basically, you know, green check mark, green check mark, green check mark. And then we get to what the actual results are. So the program that we looked at did 25% of the capacity of the plant in South Dakota that we were focused on. 
roughly 80 farms that we worked with. The results were very exciting. So uh, we were about 20%. That supply chain was about 20% below the national average, which suggests that you know growers are already being undercompensated. The results of this program that we ran, without coaching, we collected uh, the previous year's data to see where they would be without you know technical uh, assistance or intervention of any kind. So they were 20% below the national average which suggests that growers can probably participate or there's probably opportunity just for very accurate accounting of what the intensity is actually of these fuels uh, to be able to have some improvements in credit generation. But most importantly, and this is what FBN is focused on, this is what uh, our, our new technology gradable is focused on, and this is what CARB or, or any of the uh, folks in the, in the value chain here are going to be focused on, is that the amount of variation in the carbon intensity of the feedstock that growers were producing in that 50-mile radius was quite high. We saw everything from 50% above the national average to 50% below. And what that really means to us is that there is, given that we didn't do any technical assistance or support beforehand, all of those growers have room to improve, whether they're the, the highest scoring or the lowest scoring. Nobody had across the board what what great would term best CI practices. So there's improvements that everybody can make. And second, because of that variation, uh, it suggests that there is a lot of opportunity for those uh, growers that are very high to come down and achieve results that um, their lowest compatriots are achieving. So bear in mind, I do not think that this is any more of a commentary on, on those growers' practices other than CI scores is not something that anybody had ever heard of uh, before we, we ran this program, and nobody knew how right. they would be measured, and nobody knew how to you know maximize. So the response from growers uh, across the board was, uh, this is really interesting. If there is a premium market to participate in, you can be absolutely sure that I am going to work to improve in this, in this fashion and win better, if not maximize uh, my carbon intensity. So I mean, if you're me, that's very exciting because yeah, we have so. exactly we have we have growers who are who who can't wait to participate in large amounts and have opportunities to substantially decarbonize you know an entire industry. We mm-hmm. have a market mechanism that is tried and tested, and we have willing and excited processors along the way to really flow an identity preserved feedstock through the system to an end market that really values it. Those are all of the pieces. <laughs> so that is an, in in its core what uh, um, what FBN is trying to do. And you had asked about Gradable. Gradable mm-hmm. is a is a facilitating technology. We have really we believe all of the analytics and and data required and participation uh, from farmers um, that would be required to uh, make this system run very smoothly. But where we have run into challenges is the ability for the buyers to be able to find score, win, and price bushels that have a new value metric on it in, in, in its carbon intensity. So a lot of the technology that buyers use to, to um, facilitate their buying today is rather aged. And when you add in something as dynamic as carbon intensity and, and uh, assign it as you know, high a value as it has, it's going to be very difficult for those buyers who are using older systems to be savvy about how to connect with growers, how to estimate um, what those CI scores are going to look like, 
how to win them and uh, build those relationships with growers who are really um, chasing lowest CI scores possible. So what Gradable is, is a complete buy-side technology stack that does everything from uh, bids and offers, contract management system, a CRM that allows buyers to do their traditional winning of, of bushels. But what's unique is that it connects with the FBM platform. So I mean, if farmers so choose, they can flow their scores along to buyers who care about it uh, to be able to both mutually find more value in in uh, in running that that IP program. So, as I mentioned to the folks at the start of the the podcast interview, you presented recently at Carb. So, can you talk to us a little bit about what you proposed and what's been the reaction? from CAR, both to what you proposed and also talking about the the results of this work that you've been doing jointly with with POET and the farmers that were sort of in the research program. Argon, you can't, uh, I can't and leave them Argonne. out. They were yes. responsible. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. They, yeah. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> yeah, they, Definitely they did all not. the scoring for this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, they were, what we presented um, was the opportunity for Identity preserved feedstocks to be evaluated in a tier two proposal for changing the, the carbon intensity of, of ethanol provided by a, a certain facility. So beyond that, our main focus was on the how we could facilitate scoring at the at the farm level, but mm-hmm. we did not get into the policy so much. The way that it will be crafted, I think, uh, is is extremely important, and and we are not the policy experts here. Uh, instead, what we wanted to bring to the attention of CARB and, and uh, the community for further research and discussion is that this was possible and it can substantially drive uh, decarbonization in agriculture as a whole and also in biofuels that are coming into the state of California. So that was really what uh, the purpose of the presentation was about. And the reception was quite strong. We had positive comments from the industry from folks outside the industry, from um, environmental NGOs, both uh, in the public workshop itself and then and then uh, offline as well. And I think that where folks really are finding common ground is the you know the opportunity to use a market that that has proven to be highly successful in the agriculture industry that is primed and really looking for market opportunities to differentiate their grain on an environmental basis. And that has been a very hot topic across a number of different avenues. I think um, you know you see lots of folks talking about offset markets and about you know other interesting avenues for incentivization. Now, I think cover crop um, or excuse me, uh, uh, crop insurance programs, all kinds of other uh, things. But um, this is is unique because it is a market that is already up and running and set to go. And really, we're not asking for a rule change at all, just a further extension of how the policy was designed to work in the first place. So I think we're pretty excited about it. The timeline appears to be the policy development for through 2021 and 2022 uh, with the potential for rule change and adoption in uh, the beginning of 2023. So CARB is actually going to do some further consideration of this and potentially develop a a policy around farm level field field level CI. I certainly can't speak for them, but that is my sure. hope and and uh, and expectation. <laughs> yeah, I think this is uh, is is a really interesting development because farm communities have suffered 
and in various assorted ways. So to to I see it in in many ways, you know, assuming the policy is crafted right, and that that's to to uh, carb, and they have a pretty pretty good track record <laughs> at doing that. It's kind of like a win win win. It's good for the uh, farmer in terms of adding value. If done right, it will incentivize farm level CI reduction, which is what we want, and I think what this incoming administration is going to to want. It drives down ultimately fuel CI and adds value there, and it strengthens the program. It provides additional backstops if electricity isn't quite, you know, if electric vehicle uptake, for example, isn't quite in line with um, ZEV targets, for example, or if other fuel categories don't scale up. I mean, it just provides other low CI options that can keep the program stable. So I, I see I see this as there aren't that many win-win-wins, <laughs> but I see this as one potential win-win-win that will benefit different sectors across yeah, the Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate your insights on that. I mean, I, I come, at, come at it from the, the agriculture side, from the, the farm community side, and, and uh, some of the transportation policy and plans have been new for me, and, and it's been a fast learning. But what I hear and what I understand is that the amount of uh, credit opportunity um, from mass adoption of uh, precision nitrogen application from a high adoption of cover crop use or, or uh, minimum tillage uh, from use of nitrogen inhibitors are all very exciting. And I, I think that regardless on how fast or slow electric vehicles happen, that that's existing in the farm community um, and those incentives being uh, there for at least for a number of years that it takes to have them be the norm instead of the exception is right. undeniably a good thing. And, and almost everybody that I've talked to is, is interested, you know, is interested in promoting that. So that has been, I think, pretty rewarding to find something that it seems to be, as you said, a win, win, win. <laughs> yeah. You noted that there were a number of folks, different entities, even in the environmental community that really support this. But there were, in comments submitted after the workshop, there were some concerns that were presented about the platform. So I'm going to read you one from the International Council on Clean Transportation, which is the ICCT. And here's what they say about concerns with this approach. There are two major problems with this proposal, shuffling and cherry picking. FBN's proposal would incentivize Californian fuel suppliers to switch to biofuel supply chains sourcing from farms that already have very low CIs, likely due to naturally high yields in some regions. It would also incentivize lower-than-average CI farms to report their CIs and higher-than-average CI farms not to report cherry-picking. Both of these problems would result in LCFS credits being awarded without any real GHG reductions taking place. So how do you respond to comments like that? Well, so first of all, I think that this is exactly the kind of discussion that we were hoping to have when we presented. You know, um, I think that a strong policy here is going to have to have a lot of voices from a lot of different sides that uh, really come out uh, strongly. But what I think that the real important thing to understand here is that is how 
change happens at the farm level and and how um, what we're talking about when you know when practices are actually adopted and and uh, what the what the behavior side is uh, of this as opposed to just you know macroeconomics which is which is largely what this what this critique is so yeah. a couple of things that i'll I'll talk about there and then I'll come back to kind of the, the broader uh, uh, critique but when we talk to growers and and when we look at uh, folks that are have adopted you know a, a number of uh, efficient practices or a number of uh, regenerative practices and then when we when we look at people that are thinking about them or or want to adopt them it is not it happens through an immense amount of evangelism by growers who have pioneered really the critiques that we now laud as being you know low carbon in general uh, and it happens through you know they work on it sometimes a good chunk or most of their entire career. You know, we mm-hmm. have growers in our network who have been strip tilling for 20 years and have been uh, working on their technique, working on how that works, uh, and really inventing the science and the uh, agronomy of how to be successful there. And so when we think about how that undeniably great practice then proliferates to their neighbors, how it happens is through evangelization. Primarily, one of my concerns as we think about getting high adoption of, of strong practices is it's not just plugging in, you know, technical assistance and, and um, providing, you know, education on, on how to be successful if, with various practices and, and production methods. It has to be a cultural movement. And mm-hmm. what this comment misses is in talking about rewarding different growers that are may not adopt certain practices or may not adopt new practices to get a certain CI score is that the entire system is going to depend on those growers being bought in and saying, everything I've been telling this community for the past 10 years or 15 years about how I've been farming, about how it's enriching my soils, about how it's saving me on input costs, about how you know it is helping me to have less variation in my results. All of that's still true, but now look at I am even being recognized by having new marketing opportunities, and and it's going to be based on that person and that leadership in communities all across the country, in which these practices are actually going to be really broadly adopted. And so I am very reluctant to sign up to a system that says that this is only going to be available for growers who are adopting various practices specifically to participate in this program. I think that that is uh, a recipe for disaster. And mm-hmm. it's not without an analogy. Same thing happened with the Chicago Climate Exchange, uh, where they were looking for, they had strict rules about additionality. And what that ended up doing is it alienated all the growers who really had any historic knowledge about how to be successful here and, and uh, relied instead on growers who were adopting practices for the first time, which Anybody who's been to, you know, a farm field that is going through any kind of transition knows that this is a, it's a crucial time for uh, supports from your community. I think that the critique is well, well intentioned, but misses the, you know, the entire importance of how behavioral change will actually happen and practice adoption will actually happen in the field. So we cannot, you know, I'm very obviously passionate about this, but we cannot preference programs that are going to alienate the, the most knowledgeable and most bought into these systems. I feel very strongly. So the beauty of the what the California market is, is that there are a relatively small number of people that I would say are really maximizing carbon intensity scores. And the market is large enough that those 
folks are going to be a footnote in terms of total credit generation, but they are going to be responsible for a huge amount of growers that are going to be able to implement these practices for the first time because of the the way that they represent you know opportunities in, in their own field. So that I think is 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 crucially important to think about as we look at you know these large market changes that are far away from the farm. You know, thinking about how how actually growers can participate and what the elements are needed and required to make those changes and to be successful with them and making sure that those are present as well. Because one without the other on either side is just not going to be successful. We also have uh, evidence that the, I mean, this, the, the idea of cherry picking is not a new one to challenges with, with the LCFS that's just in one you know, state market and not, not national, right? But the concerns here, you know, originally were that individual facilities that had great CI scores would then flow to, to California and, and they wouldn't, they would just sit there and enjoy the benefits of having won the lottery, essentially, to be able to, you know, generate additional credits and, and that uh, ethanol would flow that was in a naturally, or biofuels in general, that was in a naturally higher carbon intensity production spot would flow to other locations. And that did happen. But if you look over the past, 10 years, those facilities have invested heavily in reducing their carbon intensity and have driven a tremendous number of new credits based on their consistent, continued drive to improve and their incentivization to do so. I will say that I have not met a single farmer who wants to participate in a market who doesn't expect to constantly and continually change and improve. The nature of having an incentive here is that Growers are going to chase it, are going to improve, and are going to consistently strive to be uh, eligible for that. So I understand and appreciate the, the comments from ICCT. I think that they're important to consider. And, and certainly we can as have certain policy mechanisms in place that can help to reduce this. But as far as taking it as, a, as an example of, of a reason why we shouldn't pursue this, I just don't think it holds water. So let me ask you a couple of quick questions before we close. One is, do you see, you you talked about incentivizing farm-level CI improvement, not just in California, but nationally. So do you see the the incoming Biden administration doing more to support efforts to reduce farm-level CI? Is that an area that you've you've really gotten into or that you have some observation about? I mean, especially yeah, if absolutely. we're going to be considering national, you know, a national LCFS, which I think is, at least it'll be considered anyway. I think it's on the table. <laughs> yeah, that's more difficult for me to to comment on the, the um, national LCFS. I mean, as it, as it pertains to growers, it seems like it would be uh, quite beneficial, but I'm not, I'm not sure where the, the rest of the politics lie. But I will say that in the... Biden USDA transition plan, C21P, there are three aspects that I think we were really keyed in on. And, and the first is the carbon bank, I'm using mm-hmm. the USDA and the C to develop a government protocol and, and buying mechanism for carbon credits at the, at the field level. I think that it will, it will be a, a great boon to, to growers. I think it will also help to codify policy and protocol on how to measure and monitor um, some of these things and then credit, you know, specifically soil organic carbon. So I think that that's going to be quite an interesting thing to watch. The other two things are that crop insurance has long had the opportunity to be able to incentivize 
growers to, you know, based on, on what their practices are. And the C21P identifies that as something that they're going to work on. And then finally, um, and most relevant to this conversation is that the Biden transition team plans on, uh, or the future Biden team plans on having the USDA and the NRCS look at how they can work to decarbonize biofuels through focus on agricultural practices uh, for the input. So that is something that we're, we're really uh, quite excited about talking about with that group and, and understanding what their priorities are and then showing them, uh, you know, the body of work that has already gone into this um, by us and by other players, you know, how we can really empower that. So I do think it's on their radar. And I think that reducing CI and feedstock in, in general is, is an awesome opportunity. Very much looking forward to FY21 and to working with that team on it. The last question I have is, well, actually next to the last question, we're talking about the U.S., but could this platform be implemented eventually in other countries? I mean, um, you know, Canada's developing their own clean fuel standard. The EU has a renewable energy directive. Brazil has Renova Bio. Do you see, you know, other countries that have sort of low carbon fuel type policies having the opportunity or, or the ability to implement something similar that will help farmers and drive down farm level CI? Yeah, absolutely. I think all of those countries or, or groups of countries are interesting to watch, but I'll just give an example. I mean, Canada, uh, as you said, is, is uh, developing their own national clean fuel policy. And in speaking with that, uh, uh, the team that's responsible for developing, they plan on having um, identity preserved pathways available for claiming. So uh, that, in fact, may be the first low carbon program that uh, uh, directly rewards growers for adopting low carbon practices. So short answer to a a very long question is absolutely. And uh, they may even go before the U.S. So my last question. Oh, that's really interesting. My last question is, I'm going to leave that one there, but that's really interesting. <laughs> so we talked a lot about corn and, and ethanol, and that's what the studies that you've done with POET and um, the farm community and Argonne and so forth have focused on. What about the potential for soybeans? I know that soy- soybeans do not retain the same level of soil organic carbon, for example, as corn, but are there CI, farm level CI reducing opportunities as well? And could that be included in the FBM platform or in a CARB or, uh, you know, LCFS farm level type policy, so on and so forth? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the examples that I gave were corn, and that was uh, where we initially started out. But this year we'll be doing programs on beans, on sorghum, and, and hopefully on rice. Oh, we've also done uh, for on the food side, we've done wheat, uh, so not not for biofuels. And the answer is yes on all of them to various extents. I think wheat, corn, sorghum, because you're applying nitrogen, have potentially larger opportunities in terms of the amount of CI score reduction. But beans as well have really, we believe that there is a big opportunity for them and, and uh, relatively important as well. So. I would not uh, expect that that's going to be any less interesting or any less exciting. And, and we're very eager to uh, start on those projects. Yeah, it's interesting what you're saying about wheat and rice, obviously not biofuels production feedstocks, at least in this country. 
So it's almost like, you know, you could develop some kind of farm CI program that really has nothing to do with the with the fuels market, but that incentivizes, you know, I suppose it would apply to other, you know, supply chains and it would incentivize whether they produce wheat or rice or some other feedstock you would evaluate in the future, you know, it would apply there and farmers could sort of benefit in, in the same way that we're kind of talking about with the the fuel feedstocks like corn and and soybeans. That's absolutely correct. The goal is, the hope and the plan is to be able to put carbon intensity scoring or other environmental claims on end products, whether that be uh, biofuels, whether that be food, or whether that be animal protein. It's all coming from the same place, right? Um, And it's all Mm -hmm. the same systems to be able to collect that information, to be able to score it and analyze it. So that is absolutely in the works. And I can't can't tell you when we'll be on shelves, but I, I can tell you that we're working on it right now. Oh, that's really interesting. So we'll leave it there. That's the show. Thank you so much for listening. And I want to thank Steele so much for being on the show today. It was a great pleasure to have you and to chat about this. It's an emerging sort of area that I think is just really interesting and can be really beneficial on so many different levels. If you're looking for more analysis on future fuels issues, head to my website, futurefuelstrategies.com, and sign up for my free bi-weekly newsletter. Thanks again for listening.